The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Ben Levison, Deputy Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today to learn more about what's happening in healthcare. COVID cases are falling, new boosters may be on their way, and Amazon may be taking, making another push into the business. Barron's reporter, Josh Nathan Cases, joins me to discuss all this and more. Welcome, Josh. How's your Wednesday going? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, happy to talk to you. How are you? Doing well. Um, so, Josh, let's get uh, the latest update on COVID-19 in the U.S. Seems like there's some decent, if not good news on the COVID front. Yeah, you look, I mean, you know, we, we each time we do this call, um, we take a look at where things are. And, you know, as compared to other times, I think things aren't that bad. C- cases are dropping nationwide. Um, they're down about 16 percent over the last two weeks. More importantly, deaths are down about 5 percent. That's the average number of deaths per day, which, which is still a substantial number, but but lower. Um, hospitalizations are also down. Yeah, and, and if you look across the country, I mean, the trend in most parts of the U.S. right now is downward. There are exceptions. I saw yesterday that cases are up very sharply in Georgia over the, the past two weeks. But Do we have any uh, idea why they're up in Georgia? No, or is I, it just Georgia know, being Georgia? Nah, who knows? You know, uh, I, I just don't know enough to say, yeah. honestly. Um, uh, you know, the most important metric, I think, is hospitalizations. Right now, there there are about forty thousand hospitalizations due to COVID in the U.S. And just in terms of context, you know, the Omicron peak last winter. Um, at that point, that was one hundred and sixty thousand. So we're well below there. But but I should say, uh, people may recall that things were quite light in in terms of COVID infections in April. Um, there was a real lull in the spring, and at that point, it was about fifteen thousand hospitalizations. So. You know, we're we're not we're not at those low levels that we enjoyed earlier this year, um, but it's also um, you know nowhere near the kind of situation that we saw in in January. Um, so so look, it's it's uh, it's not not that bad. Now I should say we're headed into the fall, and, and um, you know schools are about to start again, and we'll see what happens. Um, but as as a sort of baseline, um, certainly could be worse. So you also noted when we were talking that the context for cases per day is is getting it's it's harder now because there have been changes in testing. Can you yeah. explain what's going on there? Yeah. So you know we 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 um, the U.S. is averaging ninety two thousand cases per day right now. You know at at the Omicron peak we were talking about before in January it was more than eight hundred thousand cases per day. But those comparisons don't don't aren't really useful and and the reason is that there's, first of all, much broader access to rapid at-home tests, um, which people use and then can't report. So they aren't counted. Those positives aren't counted in these figures. Um, you know, you could also imagine very different habits and availability in terms of PCR testing. Um, so those sort of, uh, I think it's still useful to track case counts because it gives you a sense of where things are trending. But I, I, I think it's probably not useful to say, okay, we're at 40,000 now. Let's compare that to where we were in April or in, um, in January. 
Um, so, you know, that's, and I think it's one of the challenges is thinking about what the most important metrics are at this point in the pandemic. Uh, when we're thinking about COVID infections, I mean, is it test positivity? Is it case counts, um, uh, hospitalizations, ICU admissions or, or deaths? Um, you know, I think there's reasons to look at each of these numbers. Um, but, uh, it's, it's not as though we can look at that case count and say, okay, here's where we are and here's how it compares to where we were six months ago. I mean, it sounds like they're, uh, just because of the availability of those at home tests that, uh, we're probably undercounting by a bit. Oh, we're definitely undercounting. We've always been under undercounting, you know, across the whole course of the mm -hmm. pandemic. Not everybody who has COVID gets a PCR. Uh, not everybody who has COVID gets diagnosed. Mm -hmm. Not everybody who has COVID knows they have COVID. Um, but yeah, I, I would say. I think it's 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 expected that the you know proportion of cases that don't get counted is very very high right now, and and that's I think due in large part to the fact that you know when you get one of those at home rapid tests and you get a positive, you, you know there's just not a way to and people just can't report that, so it's right. not counted in those numbers. Okay, um, well let's turn to boosters. Um, Pfizer, BioNTech, Moderna—they've been working on vaccines that would target uh, Omicron and uh, other strains of the virus. How's that all going? Yeah, so there's a lot going on here uh, with, with this upcoming booster campaign right now and the what we know is changing on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, just to take a step back, people will recall that the vaccines that we've been getting from the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine that we've been getting across the whole course of the pandemic, it's the same shot and it's designed to target um, basically the, the one of the very first strains of COVID ever sequenced. It obviously extinct now. Uh, the vaccines still work relatively well. But um, but the, the 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 advantage of the mRNA based vaccine, the, the sort of one of the whole ideas behind this approach was that you could relatively rapidly and easily switch out the strains that you're training the body to protect against as the virus changes. And that hasn't been done yet. And in the fall, um, that will be done, um, we expect. And Pfizer and Moderna both have um, bivalent vaccines that they've developed that mix the original vaccine with an updated vaccine. And in the US, that updated vaccine targets the BA4-5 Omicron subvariants. That's a subvariant that is currently basically responsible for every single case in the US right now. Um, for various reasons, Pfizer and Moderna are, have a different vaccine they're going to be using outside of the US. Those target BA1, um, which is extinct in the U.S. At this point, the U.S. doesn't want those, and so they're selling them to other countries. Um, I, the, the U.K. has approved Moderna's bivalent booster for the fall. Uh, the U.S. hasn't yet, but there's a lot of signs that that could happen in the next few days. Um, Pfizer completed its submission to the FDA for authorization of its uh, BA4-5 bivalent booster on Monday. Moderna did the same thing on Tuesday. And in an interview with the New York Times, also on Tuesday, the head of vaccines, essentially, at the FDA, Dr. Peter Marks, um, said that he was, or the FDA is pretty close to authorizing these bivalent boosters. He didn't give a date, but one important piece of information is that the CDC advisors have scheduled a meeting uh, for next Thursday or Friday. So just to sketch out how these things work, mm. uh, what, what's generally happened is that the FDA has convened its advisors. Then the FDA has issued an authorization. Um, then the CDC's vaccines advisors meet. They, they vote. And then the CDC issues a recommendation. And once all those steps are complete, the COVID vaccines have rolled out. It sounded from the Times report 
on Tuesday that the FDA is going to skip the vaccine advisory committee meeting. They don't need to hold it. They held a meeting in June in which um, these vaccines were discussed, uh, and it sounded like they may, they may skip it this time. Um, the CDC advisors still do need to meet. So one possible schedule, uh, sort of guessing here, but one possible schedule is that you know the FDA issues its authorization, say, Tuesday, Wednesday next week. Uh, CDC has their advisory committee meeting Thursday, Friday, and then you know late in the day Friday, the CDC um, issues its its uh, its recommendation, which would allow vaccines to start being given, you know, presumably just after Labor Day. But that, that that's a guess, and and it is contingent on the FDA deciding they do want to issue this authorization, which they may not do. Although that would be a a, a very big surprise how much of a, a time crunch is there on this do you think um do, do, do we need to get these out asap kind well, of um, i think if you ask different uh experts you'll get very different answers i mean the you know one important point here is that the the companies pfizer and moderna were ready and able to do a rollout earlier in the summer in the late summer in fact you know uh, moderna ceo um very aggressively was saying he, he he basically said he could only make uh his vaccine um well sorry to, to, to so so let me take a step back the these companies both started developing the ba1 specific vaccines a long time ago and have tested them in, in people um they had the fda had this meeting in late june where the fda advisor said we don't want the ba1 vaccine we want a ba45 vaccine if the FDA had gone with the VA1 vaccine, that would have been rolled out already. I mean, they, the, the companies had said they could do that in August. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the, 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 the conversation among the advisors and the decision by the FDA itself was that it was better to wait for what they estimated would be better vaccines targeted to a more current um, variant. Uh, so the, the FDA has, has chosen to take this more slowly already um, in order to get what they think is going to be a better better, better tool. Um, and, you know, there, as I say, there, there's a lot of um, dispute among experts about whether updating the vaccines is even a good idea. Um, so I, I don't think we know. It seems as though the FDA, obviously, the FDA and CDC do seem to think it's a good idea. And, um, and they're pushing forward with it as quickly as they can. You know, this is all based on the expectation that there could be a spike in cases in the fall and winter. And that would be due, you know, both to the sort of steady evolution of the virus and also to waning immunity from previous waves of boosters and from, um, you know, natural infection, uh, natural immunity kind of waning down after the previous waves. Um, but this is, this is all a guess. And, and um, so, uh, you know, I think people are, are making the best judgment that they can based on the information that they, um, that they have. You know, one interesting point here, is that the applications that Pfizer and Moderna issue, uh, submitted to the FDA uh, this week include data on human trials of their BA1 specific vaccines, although they're asking for, for authorization of BA4 specific vaccines. They have not completed human trials of their BA4, four or five specific vaccines. Exactly. They don't have human data. They have animal data on it but they don't have human data on it. The FDA has said this is okay. This is something that is done frequently, for example, when you're updating flu vaccines, where you you know look at you know, potentially animal data on an updated version, but you 
are basing your authorization or approval decision on um, on you know uh, data on the non-updated version or other versions of the same vaccine. Uh, but it hasn't been done before uh, with mRNA-based vaccines at all or or in COVID. Um, so, you know, it, I think just looking away from COVID for a minute, you know, or away from this particular decision for a minute, you know, if, if this goes well and these vaccines are very helpful and, you know, there's a good real-world outcome, you know, I think that that is positive both for, you know, the long-term um, uh, COVID vaccine booster, mar COVID booster vaccine market, but also for these mRNA vaccines in general. I mean, it sort of shows that you can update them very quickly without completing human trials based on, uh, you know, prior approvals of similar versions of your vaccine. I mean, the truth is that if we look at what these mRNA vaccines are, I mean, essentially, if you're approving, um, you know, a BA4-5 vaccine based on BA1 data, you know, you're just switching out the protein that these vaccines are encoding for. There's not the difference between like a mRNA BA4-5 vaccine and BA1 vaccine is not that different from the difference between an mRNA flu vaccine and an mRNA COVID vaccine. I mean, you're still using the same lipid nanoparticle wrapper and swapping out the specific strain that you're encoding for inside. Now, I'm not saying that the FDA would approve a mRNA-based um, flu vaccine based on mRNA-based COVID data. But it's, it sounds like we're getting closer to like this proof of concept almost. Right, like exactly. It's getting closer to the 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 idea that Moderna was selling in 2019 when um, when this all was highly theoretical. And now it's not theoretical. Now billions of people have received mRNA-based vaccine doses and, and it's really happening. And you can sort of see getting closer to their original vision. Is there enough of the uh, booster uh, shots to go around? Um, so the U.S. has bought uh, 66 million Moderna doses and 105 million Pfizer doses to be delivered this year. Uh, and that's of the, the bivalent boosters. There are about 200 million people in the U.S. who I think would be eligible. So that's that's fully vaccinated people over 18. Um, these are boosters. These aren't primary doses. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's not quite 200 million. You know, that's what, like 170 million or something. Um, we don't know what demand is going to be. Um, so I, I don't think, I don't, I don't know that we would expect shortages, but it's not like there's a huge surplus here. In fact, the CDC last week put out a planning document where they said there would be a sufficient but finite supply. Um, the U.S. has, um, in their contracts with Pfizer, Pfizer and Moderna, there are options to buy many, many more doses, but the government says they don't have congressional funding to buy more doses. And that goes on to a separate conversation about um, right. these vaccines entering the private markets, uh, which which could happen. Right. I mean, it seems like the the business model, I mean, for, for these companies is that the, their customers or governments around the world, including the U.S. government, at least in the U.S., um, that seems to be changing now. Right. And then sort of getting back to a more normal uh, vaccine situation. I mean, basically, you know, what, what's happened here is that last week, the federal government in a number of ways uh, signaled that that government purchasing of COVID-19 and therapeutics will end soon. And again, that that's has nothing to do with the fall boosters. The fall boosters are bought and paid for. 
Um, but looking forward, you know, we may be seeing these vaccines go to the private market and then they would be they would function in the same way as any other vaccine does. Um, and this has been expected a long time. You know, the, in, in the, the White House had said, you know, earlier that uh, I guess in the spring, um, that if they didn't get more funding from Congress, they wouldn't be able to buy fall vaccine doses. They didn't get more funding, but they moved money around and they bought it anyway. But it, it does seem like this is ending now. And, uh, you know, I think just in terms of these companies, it, Moderna is, is inherently at a disadvantage here once things go commercial, just because Pfizer is, you know, one of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world with a massive commercial infrastructure. And Moderna, although a very large company now, too, is like a relative startup compared to Pfizer. Yeah, I mean, does Moderna need a, I don't want to, maybe a partner is the wrong term, but someone to help with that commercial side, the production and the, the shipping and whatnot for all that? I mean, they've been preparing for, I mean, they, they've seen this coming. So they, yeah. uh, they built this out and they've expanded their global footprint and hired people and you know, they have executives responsible for this. So, you know, I, I, they're not going to like have a company that they partner with in the U.S. to market the vaccine. They, they chose not to do that a long time ago. Um, but, you know, I think investors will be watching to see how the commercial battle shapes up. And I think Moderna would argue that their vaccine is better. I think Pfizer would probably contest that. But, um, you know, Moderna, one important thing is that, um, you know, the, the vaccines are fully approved, but I, the boosters are only authorized. Mm -hmm. So Moderna can't advertise uh, you can't advertise an authorized drug. You can only do advertising once you're approved. And and I expect, you know, it, it, once these booster, once the boosters are fully approved, you'll start to see, and these drugs go into the commercial market, the vaccines go into the commercial market, you're going to start to see, you know, advertisements. I'll, be, I'll, see, I'll see the Moderna ad pop up in the middle of some late night television show I'm watching, exactly. testing all the risk <laughs> factors. Exactly. All that fun stuff. Right, right. You can see ad wars between Pfizer and Moderna for your, your next COVID booster. Right. Well, great. Well, let's move on from COVID because there's other stuff happening uh, in healthcare too. Um, Carlos, uh, one of our, our, our listeners, was wondering about, uh, you know, what Amazon's up to. And I'm kind of wondering the same thing. Um, it seemed for a while that it uh, was quiet on the on the healthcare front, um, but then it bought one medical. Now it's getting into, it's throwing its hat into the ring for another company. Can you guide us through what's happening? Yeah. So as you mentioned, Amazon bought uh, one medical or announced a, a deal to acquire one medical for $3.9 billion in July. This is a company that has it's basically a chain of primary care providers. Um, and now there's a report from the Wall Street Journal that they are also bidding for Signify Health. That deal could be worth more than $8 billion. Um, they're one of a number of, of suitors. But, you know, I think Amazon Amazon's interest in Signify, especially so close on the heels of the one medical deal, really pricked up the ears of a lot of healthcare investors and people in healthcare. You know, Amazon's interest in healthcare has always made investors um, kind of nervous. You know, people may remember in 2018 when Amazon bought PillPack, which was an online pharmacy, um, there, there was, you know, a lot of, a lot of um, uh, pharmacy stocks uh, took a big hit. Right. There were also a lot of anxieties. They, they had this program called Haven Healthcare, which was a collaboration between them, uh, JP Morgan and Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, what it was trying to do was always a little bit unclear, but it also, when they announced it, um, sent the shares of a number of healthcare companies sinking. And, you know, there's this worry that um, 
Amazon's immense scale and and uh, you know data capacities and logistics capacities could end up disrupting you know any number of parts of the healthcare sector. How how real are those worries? Do you think are there companies that really do need to be uh, kind of uh, uh, you know on the lookout for uh, uh, possible encroachment? Yeah, look, I mean, we 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 talked about this in a piece this week that um, Amazon, uh, you know, according to reporting, uh, outbid CVS for one med- CVS Health for one medical, and that they are now up against CVS Health to get um, Signify. Uh, you know, CVS has been a major consolidator in the healthcare space. Obviously, they bought they bought Aetna. Um, years before that, they bought Caremark. Uh, they have, for example, you know, in-store um, sort of care uh, medical. I'm sorry, it's called, uh, the, the name uh, mini clinics. These like in-store clinics that could potentially, you know, could be challenged by one medical. I mean, you could see a lot of reasons why uh, Amazon expanding its healthcare presence could be threatening to somebody like CVS. Um, you know, there's lots of obvious, like just synergy opportunities for Amazon. These are data rich healthcare companies and you could see them trying to sell any number of Amazon products to the, the patients or clients. Um, but I think there's bigger strategic questions here about what their intentions are. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I guess the one thing that when we've had discussions in the newsroom about this, that people don't seem to, um, uptight about is regular regulators coming and saying, Amazon, you can't do this. Um, do, do you, are we too complacent? Yeah. I don't, you know, I, I don't really have an opinion on that. I, I think that, um, I mean, I'm not sure I see it for something like one medical or signify, but, um, it's sort of hard to judge. Um, there's also been a lot of news on the uh, opioid litigation front. I know this is a subject you've been following for quite a long time. Um, can you catch us up? Are we are we nearing the end here? I, you know, we're not nearing the end, but but because this kind of litigation just goes on for a very very long time, but something is happening. I mean, you know, the opioid litigation is is this massive effort by states and local governments to hold companies, all sorts of companies responsible for the opioid crisis. And, and, you know, people may remember that in the months before the, um, the pandemic, uh, the, this, this litigation was a major focus for healthcare investors. And it seemed at that time, like it was really hitting a crescendo. There was, um, a proceeding called the multi-district litigation being run out of, uh, a federal court in Ohio, um, that that brought together thousands of cases and, and it was really moving quite rapidly. And then when the pandemic came for a number of reasons, progress just stopped, you know, a lot of trials were put off and when trials were put off, um, you know, trials cause uh, people, it, it, trial date approaching causes settlements to happen. And when trial dates don't approach, settlements don't happen. So there was really just a, an utter halt in, mm-hmm. in a lot of the progress that had been happening. And I think the idea was that these companies, companies like, CVS, Walmart, Endo, Teva, Ali, I mean, you know, just a whole number of companies that that touch opioids in all sorts of direct and indirect ways from generic drug manufacturers to branded drug manufacturers to pharmacies to the drug distributors. Um, I, and, um, I, you know, and then there was the idea that all of them were looking to reach global nationwide settlements instead of going case by case and bit by bit. And what's happened is a number of things, including that that there's a trend towards settlements and also towards companies that haven't settled yet, um, you know, beginning to 
um, get some clarity on what's going to happen to them. So, for example, Teva, which had um, a settlement or a, a, a tentative settlement in place when the pandemic hit, um, that fell through. But last month, they agreed to pay $4.4 billion, mostly in cash. And that would basically, if if all the plaintiffs sign on in the appropriate way, would end um, the uncertainty about what they're going to have to pay. And that would sort of be final for them. Allergan, which is now an Abbey subsidiary, uh, agreed to a similar $2.4 billion settlement. You know, the big thing that happened was in February when Johnson & Johnson all the, and all the drug distributors reached a $26 billion settlement. That was sort of the dam beginning to break. Um, but there, there have been more developments. There, there was uh, the judge in the multi-district litigation ordered CVS, Walmart, and Walgreens to pay $660 million to Ohio counties. Um, and, you know, the companies are going to appeal, obviously very upset at the ruling, but yeah, if you're going to go county by county across the United States, I mean, that, uh, right. And, and I think I don't want to imagine how big the number would be. Right. Exactly. And the, the way to calculate it is not to like figure out the number of people in those counties and, you know, get a per person payment and then multiply that by people in the U S I that's, that's not the way it's going to work. But I think for investors who are watching this, it begins to give a better sense of what those companies could end up paying. I, you know, it's important to say that the opioid crisis is getting worse. I mean, there were more than 80,000 over, overdose deaths involving opioids in the U.S. last year, 70,000 in 2020. Like those numbers are going up. Um, oh, I hadn't realized that. And that's so that's even with the uh, everything we know about opioids now. Um, it, it, it's I mean, still growing as a problem. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, I think um, I think there have been changes to the way that opioids are prescribed. But, you know, the genie is out of the bottle. You know, fentanyl is out there. And um, that's uh you know, treatment is very hard. Um, so there, there's there's no great answers. But, you know, hopefully some of this money these companies are paying out could go to helping the people who, who need it. Um, in terms of the litigation, it's not it's not over, but it does seem like investors are now able to have a better sense of what these companies obligations will be. And 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 so that that is, um, you know, useful, I think, for for looking looking forward. Um, so Lori asked us uh, if you asked if you had any healthcare stocks that you recommend investing in now. Um, and I know that you actually had a pick in a, a recent Barron's uh, magazine. Um, uh, would you mind uh, explaining going into that for us? Yeah. So this is a company called Halion. I, we may have spoken about this on the last reader call we did. This is a, a company um, that recently, just a month ago, um, spun out or, or was separated out from Glaxo uh, from GSK. Uh, it's a it's a consumer healthcare company. Um, you know, in in, in January, uh, Unilever offered GSK fifty billion pounds for the consumer health unit that is now Halion. Uh, Glaxo turned it down. Um, now Halion has a has a market value of about twenty four billion pounds, or about half of Unilever's price. So the market clearly disagrees with with Glaxo um, about the value of of this company. Um, but we argued in the magazine that actually it, it, the current price is a pretty good one. Um, and it, the, the stock is, is cheap. You know, they're, they're most consumer healthcare products are sold by, um, you know, or most, most of Halion's competitors are like broad consumer products companies like Unilever, for example, which does sell consumer health products, but also other things, um, you know, for a long time, a lot of these consumer health brands were inside of pharmaceutical companies. And as we did a, a big story, or I did a big story a number of months ago about how pharmaceutical companies are are slimming down and, and getting rid of 
uh, everything they do that is outside of core biopharma. And, and the, the, the product of that has been um, a lot of these uh, I, uh, consumer health products being consolidated into Halion. So Halion is made up of, of what used to be Glaxo's consumer health products and also Pfizer's consumer health products and also Novartis's consumer health products. So they've got Sensodyne, they've got Tylenol, they've got all sorts of vitamins. Um, and what's interesting and, and makes and it, them, sorry, you know, watch and what makes that sort of tricky for investors, I think, is that there's no real peers. So, you know, as I said, um, uh, the, the obvious peers are consumer health or consumer products companies like Procter and Gamble or, um, or Unilever, but, but those are, those are different businesses in that they are not sort of purely consumer healthcare. Johnson and Johnson is spinning off its consumer health division next year. Um, and that will be a peer there. There are a few other consumer health peer play companies, but they operate on a much smaller scale. Um, so, you know, it's, a, it's a sort of a new kind of company, um, you know, consumer health, I think is attractive to investors and in that it's sort of notionally reception proof. Some of it's of the, of, of the pieces of what makes up consumer health have like pretty good defensive moats and businesses that are hard to enter. Um, there are problems with Halion, uh, and there's some very good reasons for why the stock has not been greeted with open arms. There's a lot of debt. Um, that company says they have a lot of cash flow they're going to pay it down with. I think the biggest concern is that Glaxo or GSK and Pfizer own about 45% of the stock, and they've both said they're going to sell it. Um, they've said it's going to be a disciplined sale, and they don't want to destroy value. Um, but, you know, I think some investors are clearly waiting to see what happens with that before they jump in. Uh, and let's take one more reader question um, before we wrap things up. This is from Steve. He asks, what's up with IBB? It's been going up and down. It doesn't seem to have a defined pattern. Your thoughts on the outlook for the biotech sector? Thanks. And, you know, Josh, I was been wondering the same thing. We had, what, 50 it got destroyed, 50% up, 9% down. What's happening? Yeah, so actually, so IBB is a, is a biotech ETF. It tracks some of the larger stocks. I happen to have the numbers in front of me for the other biotech ETF tracks the smaller stocks, mostly it's the XPI. So between June 15th and August 15th, the XPI was up 50%. Uh, it's been down since then. It's down 9% since, since that date. Uh, we've written a lot about this. I mean, it, you know, it doesn't seem to me that anything fundamental about the biotech sector has changed across that entire period. You know, what's happened was what I think most analysts have said led to the the increase was just a bunch of m a and some you know good cards flipping some some positive data coming through um i so why is it down again <laughs> i mean I, I think what the lesson of of this whole experience uh of you know watching biotech over, over the course of the summer is that um you know biotech stocks are very contingent on like the last you know, the, the, the mood of biotech investors and what what the last news was um, and the sort of ephemeral senses of or, or vague senses of whether Big Pharma is buying or not. And it seemed like Big Pharma was buying and is buying. Um, but I think it's very hard to pin down why it would have fallen in the last few weeks, except or in, in the you know, since the 15th, except that the market is down and, yeah. um, you know, that and that that's probably a really big part of it. Right. I mean, it's uh, something I always think about, you know, with most stocks, no matter the sector, you know, 60% of the move is still just what is the market doing? 
right um, right can explain uh, just about everything well josh i think we're out of time here um so thank you for being here and thanks to our audience for tuning in please join us again tomorrow mansion global reporter leslie hendrickson discusses luxury wellness amenities for the home with anna burstow strategic advisor and wellness pioneer for six senses hospitality and raison d'etre thank you for listening be safe and have a nice day the energy transition is a long and winding road and it needs to be taken step by step learn more at siemensenergy.com